Good day, folks. Uh, very quick preamble to summarize the conclusions of today's show. And by the by, as of next week, these sort of preambles and postscripts that I've been kind of tacking on to the beginning and episode, beginning and the end of episodes, they're going to start occurring within the body of the show. I just decided that with a couple shows already in the can and already being so late and getting them out, I didn't want to uh, go in and try and rework the shows themselves. Figured it would just be easier to pop these on like this. So excuse me if it's a little awkward, but hopefully it will get this process moving just a little bit faster. In any event, the conclusion of today's show is really pretty straightforward, and we're going to stay very close to one particular text as we're talking today, which does help quite a bit with the structure, I think. Having been talking so much about reasoning, and of course particularly this European notion, this European style of highly objective, nearly absolute reasoning, today we're going to read from a modern thinker to see how well this idea of absolute reasoning and objectivity actually holds up. And the answer is, it does not hold up well at all. But please don't tell John Stuart Mill because, you know, of course, he'll, he'll be crushed. His uh, sort of English stoicism notwithstanding, I, I gather he's a pretty emotional guy, so maybe we just don't want to lay that, that kind of heavy trip on him right now. In any event, looking forward, we'll certainly be thinking about the ramifications of the fact that if you believe what we've presented thus far in this series, that a chauvinism based on and compelled by a style of reasoning led that style of reasoning to be spread across the globe via imperialism to the point that it became something like a global standard. But it turns out that our understanding of that style of reasoning and our belief in its validity were completely misguided. So yes, that's, that's a little quandary that we are absolutely going to be coming back to. But without further ado, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. Today we're going to continue our series on reason, on imperialism, and how those two notions combine to, if you will, change the world's mind. Now last time we spoke about the role that European notions of reason played as sort of one of a collection of different chauvinisms at work in the overall European worldview. Now, this was along with religion, economics, often notions of racial superiority, and so on and so on and so on. The way all of these notions commingled to create a worldview that felt itself superior to all others and was therefore driven to reproduce itself. Now, if you put all these influences, these impulses together into a worldview, and then you feed that worldview into an institution like imperialism, and of course, it goes without saying, imperialism was, was, was compelled by these notions to a large extent. It was also shaped and justified by them. But what happens when you put all of these notions together in a worldview and then feed it into an institution like imperialism, you have what we called last time a, a mimetic superspreader event. Multiple aspects of mind and identity that believe themselves superior to alternative aspects of identity. So, for example, with the religious impulse, like most religious impulses, compelled the believer to proselytize. You have a form of rationality that itself was regarded itself as kind of the ultimate form, exclusive of all others. So you put all of these impulses together into an overall worldview, into an overall sense of identity, feed it into that, uh, what do we call it, the mimetic Gatling gun that is the institution of imperialism, and what you end up with is a process by which minds across the globe were fundamentally changed. This change, I would argue, is so extensive that it changed our basic beliefs about what minds should be, perhaps even what they can be, in a way that very much defines us to this day. But for our purposes, if you'll recall, it was this European notion of reason that was central to all of this. 
central to uh, uh, because of reason's role in the definition of freedom. Central, it's central certainly to us, to our purposes here, because of the role of reason in the definition of freedom. And again, this is kind of our, our three-part motion that I, I keep talking about here. Uh, so if I am rational, therefore I can make choices. And if I'm making rational choices, I can therefore be held accountable for those choices. You, again, we take out any one of those three pieces of rationality, choice, and accountability, and you don't have that fundamental European definition of freedom anymore. Further, of course, we see a diluted version of this same rationality as the sort of currency by which all of our civil society operates. All of our transactions in law, in education, in commerce, all of these are basically fundamentally rational transactions. Further, of course, for us and for all these philosophers that we've been talking about, these folks who defined the, the very foundations of our modern thinking about the world and about ourselves, including, of course, the nature of freedom, all of these folks are basically ardent rationalists at heart. That's at the root, that is at the foundation of all of their philosophy. They are believers in the nearly sacred capacity of, uh, of this faculty of reason that was the best possible gateway to, truth, uh, to the truth that was available to us. Reason was seen as a tool to pull us out of the mire of our subjective, transient, personality-driven perspective and into a perspective where we saw truth as it existed objectively, apart from the perspective of any one given individual. So let's begin today by asking the most basic question we can in, in response to all of this. Is this traditional European notion of reason viable? Is it an accurate description of the way reasoning does, or you know, maybe at least the way it can possibly happen, the way it can occur? For this, to answer this question, what we're going to do is look at a present-day thinker named Daniel Kahneman. Kahneman does a fantastic job of I would say bursting the bubble of our classical conception of quote-unquote capital R reasoning. And I should say that he, he's not alone in casting this kind of doubt. So when, I, when I'm talking about Kahneman today, and we're talking about how he's uh, sort of making us really re-examine this whole uh, concept of rationality and, and its sort of absoluteness and all these other things, he is one of tens of hundreds of thinkers who are pushing in the same direction all for different reasons. And this all started very shortly after Mill, actually. So you look at folks like, for different reasons, Kierkegaard, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, you look at the existentialists, you look at all of postmodernity. Every one of these thinkers in different ways was trying to chip away or completely overturn this notion of rationality as folks like Mill and Locke and Hegel and others would have conceived of it. But Kahneman I like because he really is a present-day thinker, and he's going to give us just a very practical, very scientific view of all this, just to show us how it really the, different the conception of our sort of classical conception of reason is from the way things actually work when you kind of pop open the hood and, and look at the mechanisms of our decision-making, our rationality, our choice-making, all the rest of it. So... We're going to be working primarily from Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Now, it's essentially, it's basically a laundry list of all the ways in which human beings fail to think with anything like, anything even approaching pure rationality. He shows us study after study, experiment after experiment, in which we perceive ourselves to be bringing a very rational stance to bear on a question, only to find that that we let what Kahneman describes as our quote-unquote fast thinking, essentially our habitual, reflexive, uh, instinctual thinking, that over and over and over again, we see that form of thinking taking over for a more rigorous sense of rationality that we, that we could potentially be accessing in our choice-making. For Kahneman, we can roughly divide the way the human mind seeks to solve problems and to go about most of its business into two broad categories. The first is system one, or what he calls quote-unquote fast thinking. The second is system two, or what he calls slow thinking. 
Now, just to be very clear, these aren't regions of the brain. This isn't the hippocampus or something like that. These are very figurative descriptions. It's not even uh, on the level of what you call like psychological faculties like the id and the superego, whether or not you buy into those categories. These are just categories in, into which Kahneman has found you can sort most or all of our conscious or semi-conscious decision-making and problem-solving, you can sort most of that into one of these two categories, very broadly speaking. Now, fast thinking, system one thinking, this is where we let heuristics, by which we mean, in essence, sort of programmed, typically learned habits of the brain, we let these heuristics in system one thinking take over in instances where it seems clear that those habits and that this sort of somewhat mechanized response to a problem or situation, if it seems to the brain like we, it can get away with just using these habits, these kind of mechanisms, these, these reflexes, then it's going to do that because it saves time and it saves energy. So for example, system one would control driving in a very habitual way, right? You know, if, if nothing strange is happening, uh, there are no detours, there's nothing, nothing odd that you have to negotiate, basically your system one is going to kick in and, and take over for you. And that's why you find your, your actual, what you might call your, your more conscious deliberative self sort of drifting off and thinking about other stuff, right? And we talked about that, I believe, once, once before. System one, importantly, is also where Kahneman locates our attitudes by which we mean, very, very glibly, but we are certainly going to talk a lot more about this. Attitudes are the decisions that we make, the convictions that we have, based on our feelings, really, rather than on any kind of rigorous rational contemplation or because we, we've really thought the, the problem through when we, we came to this resolution. No, an attitude is something that kind of derives from our emotional convictions rather than our rational convictions. And again, we're going to talk... A, a lot more about that, because I think it's one of the most significant things that Kahneman talks about. Now, system one, most of the time, is complemented by, sometimes overseen by, sometimes at odds with, and occasionally will just straight up sabotage system two, which is our slow system that takes over when the habitual processes of system one will no longer suffice. So, you know, go back to our analogy. When there's a detail, a, a detour rather, on our normal route, or, or when we're asked to do math, or when we're asked to recall some esoteric fact of memory. System two, of course, is also where you would find all the activities akin to those that our buddies Locke and Mill and Descartes and all the rest of them System two is where all of that kind of rationality is located. That's what they're describing when they're talking about the inherent rationality of humankind, at least to some extent. Now, importantly, Kahneman says that system two is pretty much always available to us. It's always there if we want it, but that our brains or, or our minds, it's, it's kind of with Kahneman, it's sometimes very difficult to draw that line. Of course, it always is, but uh, he's not certainly talking about purely neurological functions here. He's also not talking about issues that are purely those of the mind. So it's some kind of commingling of that, of those two ideas. And again, by the way, I know anyone familiar with the mind-body problem, I have just made a, an absolute messy hash of that problem. I, I, I get that. Hopefully you get what I'm saying when I say that mind and brain are a little bit murkily interchangeable in Kahneman here. But fundamentally, to, to, to stick with our point here, Kahneman says that system two, again, is pretty much always available to us, but that our minds are constantly trying to find ways to let system one do as much of the work as possible. So in essence, rather than painting a picture of mind that is constantly striving for greater rationality, greater objectivity, more rigorous decision-making, you know, as we would expect to hear from someone like Mill or Locke or Descartes or whoever else, Kahneman shows us that we, we have these, frankly, somewhat lazy minds, always looking for ways to minimize what it has to do to, to, to get through the world, 
always have to always looking for ways to avoid that kind of rigorous, difficult contemplation and improvisation. But and always really looking for ways to solve problems in some kind of habitual heuristic fashion based on some experience that it might have had in the past. So again, what Kahneman describes it, it, what the picture he shows us is our minds constantly trying to let system one take over as much as possible of the way we function. Not just the basic stuff here, you know, not just, okay, it's, you know, keeping the heart regulated and it's allowing us to walk up and down the stairs without having to really turn that into uh, this, this, this sort of big rational event. But really he wants to see the picture he's showing us is of a mind that's trying to hand off things like speech and decision-making and many other aspects of the mind that we typically associate as being very much rooted in our rationality. Kahneman wants us to see those as constantly having the mind trying to use system one to accomplish all of those goals and only availing itself of system two when it absolutely feels like it has to. So our brains want us to operate by heuristics. They, it wants us to operate by mechanical habits to the greatest extent possible. The problem, of course, is that as we hand over more and more of our minds to what we might call our sort of own internal built artificial intelligence, these habitual mechanical heuristics, it doesn't always work as well as we hope it will, right? With surprising frequency, we make obvious mistakes based on our emotions, based on habits, based on short-sightedness, based on trying to take a problem, solve it quickly based on some, some old lesson we learned before that, that might've worked once before, but now we're just trying to take an old solution that worked for an old problem and just stamp it on top of this problem and, and hope that it will work. And again, I'm not talking about conscious decisions that we're making when we do this. I'm talking about the way our mind is constantly looking to turn itself into a mechanical decision maker when you know, it's just to avoid this more rigorous, difficult improvisational system to decision making. So now in this process, as the mind is perpetually trying to hand off system two functions, rigorous, rational, improvisational functions, constantly trying to hand them off to system one to let those nice, easy energy and time-saving habits take over, a lot of mistakes do get made as a consequence of that. And what's particularly chilling in all this is that we probably won't notice those mistakes. We might make many of them every day, but we won't really notice until something in the outside world goes wrong and reflects itself back onto us in a way that we have to notice it and take some kind of action as a consequence. Thus, as such, we spend a surprising, I, I would, to me, I mean, as someone who really admires this whole rationalist tradition, even if I, I basically accept that it's, it, it's not a very uh, realistic way of looking at the mind, nonetheless, I spend a lot of time thinking about these guys and trying to think the way they do. So to me, it, it's, it's kind of sobering and, and maybe a little bit scary when I think about uh, the amount of time that our mind wants us to spend on this kind of heuristic, habitual autopilot. And whatever else you take away from this, let's at least admit how much room it leaves us to imagine ourselves as these sort of, you know, arch rational creatures dictating every step of our lives by a process of pure reason. You know, the, the, the kind of lives that folks like Locke and Mill and others would, would sort of portray us as, as being, as, as aspiring to live. In reality, our minds are almost always seeking to operate with as little difficult, rigorous reasoning as possible. And it typically succeeds in not having to use too much rigorous reasoning to get us through the day. Now, Kahneman's central focus is on the extent to which we succeed or fail in factoring statistical probabilities into our decision-making processes. Now, the reason he does this, the reason this is so central to him, is that doing so, this, this is not natural to us. It's not, it's not something that our brain is, is very quick to recognize and kind of habitually 
factor into the way it, it into the way it, it it thinks and into the way it works. So to do so successfully, to successfully incorporate statistical notions into our decision making, that means that we almost always have to engage system two thinking, even when system one is pulling us in the opposite direction. So in short, Kahneman finds that fundamentally we're very bad at thinking with statistical accuracy, and we tend most often to let various kind of impressions and uh, attitudinal ideas that we maintain in our system one, we let those take over even when it means making some pretty obvious statistical errors as a consequence. So in essence, he's looking at the mind in, in what you might call these kind of minor stress positions. I and mean, folks who do martial arts or, or any kind of physical work, you know, you know what a stress position is, right? If your arm is bent a little bit in the wrong way, it's just to put you in this in kind of an off position and see how you respond to it, see how you react to it. That's what he's trying to do to the mind. Maybe bend its arm back just a little bit, not to cause any permanent damage, just to see what happens when we put the mind in a place where it can't actually operate in some kind of instinctive, comfortable way that it might prefer to. Kahneman gives us an example of an investment executive talking about why he just made a very, very significant financial investment. He, so he's, he's trying to see, okay, we have this, this person who's a highly skilled, highly experienced investor. So the question Kahneman is asking is, what kind of analysis? and statistical examination is this guy doing, what's, what's he doing to sort of inform and direct his decision-making as he's making a very, very significant financial decision? Well, here's Kahneman's account of this. Quote, Unfortunately, professional intuitions do not all arise from true expertise. Many years ago, I visited the chief investment officer of a large financial firm who told me that he had just invested some tens of millions of dollars in the stock of the Ford Motor Company. When I asked how he'd made that decision, he replied that he had recently attended an automobile show, and he'd been impressed. Quoting what uh, the man that, uh, that Kahneman was talking to, the, the investor, quoting what he said, Boy, do they know how to make a car, was his explanation. He made it very clear that he trusted his gut feeling and was satisfied with himself and with his decision. I find it remarkable that he, that he had apparently not considered the one question that an economist would call relevant in this situation, to wit, is Ford stock currently underpriced? Instead, he listened to his intuition. He liked the cars. He liked the company. He liked the idea of owning that stock. Unquote. And uh, so much for the pure rationality of the invisible hand, alas. But jokes aside, can we see how unsettling this kind of observation would be to someone? Like, again, imagine we could tell Mill about this experiment or the, this brief interview that Kahneman did. Particularly if we're clearly talking about a widespread trend, not just a single observation. If for no other reason than, than self-interest, we would assume that a knowledgeable investor is going to do their work with a high degree of rationality. They're going to make the decisions they have to make in the hardest possible way, using the most difficult, most rigorous form of, of reason and rationality they have available to them to make the best possible use of their mind and their experience and their expertise and their knowledge. If this doesn't apply here, if that presumption does not work in this situation, when everything we assume we know about the mind suggests that this high-stakes, self-interest-driven decision that is based on, or at least should be based on, a long career's worth of careful study and expertise what does that say uh, for the sort of casual day-to-day -day choices that we make um, in what may, or may seem just like these minor, you know, passing decisions that we have to make through the course of any given day, but which, of course, slowly accumulate to become the sum total of the life that we've chosen to live? But Kahneman's experiments iterate out from this one question and, by and large, continue to reconfirm this central 
theme that we instinctively operate without the use of strict reasoning and rather on the basis of impulses, attitudes, and assumptions, which is always the easier course for our minds to take. But let's, let's look at some more examples because he has a, he's got a bucket full of them here. Kahneman talks about what he calls priming and its impact on the way we make decisions. He cites a rather simple experiment conducted by another team of researchers. Subjects, meaning research subjects, are shown partially, the partially completed word S-O blank P. So again, that's S-O blank P. Now, of course, there are a handful of ways we might complete this word if that's what we're asked to do. However, if just before we've been shown that partial word, we've seen the word eat, even if it was just in this totally incidental way, like uh, if there's a sign on the wall that says staff can eat lunch at one o'clock or just a, a totally random reference that's not even consciously pointed out by the actual researcher. If we see that, and even in passing, then we're going to be far more likely to complete the word as soup, S-O-U-P. If, by contrast, for some reason we see the word wash, if it's hanging over the sink and says, please wash your dishes, we are very likely to complete the word as soap, S-O-A-P. So, by manipulating context, the researchers in question were essentially manipulating how the minds of the research subjects worked. Now, this hardly sounds like the kind of scenario that Mill would want us to be thinking about when considering the rational capacity of the human mind, right? This, unlike the investor, this is just a trick scenario, right? There's nothing really that's compelling the subject to try to be actually rigorously rational. However, what Kahneman goes on to talk about shows how much sway this notion of priming has on our overall thought process. Take the further example that he cites as he continues to explore these ideas. He discusses an example of priming called the Florida effect. Subjects are shown five words and asked to assemble a four-word sentence using those words. Thinking that this is the actual meat of the experiment, Subjects commit themselves to this very dutifully. They work very hard at this. And thus, they make those five words the focus of most of their thinking for the length of the time that they have to do this task. And the task, again, is to come up with as many sentence combinations using at least four of, four of those five words as they possibly can. In one specific instance of the experiment, the words given include words such as, quote, Florida, forgetful, bald, gray, and wrinkled, unquote. After they've done their intensive thinking about these words, the group exposed to these words is then asked to stand up, walk down the hall to a second room where the experiment will continue. Now, what the research subjects do not know is that the walk, the walk between these two rooms, this is the actual experiment. Subjects who were given the quote-unquote Florida words, as they're called, words that we can easily associate with old age in human beings, those subjects, despite all being young and in perfectly fine physical shape themselves, those subjects walk down the hall significantly more slowly than groups given the quote-unquote control words that did not have a similar kind of suggestiveness in them. So here again, if we can place these, these ideas in a kind of rough comparison to Mill and Locke and all the rest of those guys, what does it say of our pristine rational capacity if even just the feel, the association of a set of words that we were using for more or less, a more or less irrelevant process, that that could so easily change who we actually believe ourselves to be down to the level of our physical presence in the world? How much else about these people was different in that short period of time when they were still sort of under the, the, the sway of the feel of these words? What might have been the outcome of needing to make some kind of life-changing choice at that time? What if they'd been proposed to? 
What if they'd had to make a, a major career choice or a, a, a major purchase decision? Now, Kahneman continues, quote, Studies of priming effects have yielded discoveries that threaten our self-image as conscious and autonomous authors of our judgments and our choices. For instance, most of us think of voting as a deliberate act that reflects our values and our assessment of policies that is not influenced by irrelevancies. Our vote should not be affected by the location of the polling station, for example, but it is. A study of voting patterns in precincts in Arizona in the year 2000 showed that the support for propositions to increase the funding of schools was significantly greater when the polling station was in a school than when it was in a nearby location. A separate experiment showed that exposing people to images of classrooms and school lockers also increased the tendency of participants to support the school initiative. Unquote. So, as Kahneman says here, surely voting, casting our vote, this is one of those activities where I assume most any of us would consider that we are committing our most deliberative selves to the choice at hand. But this is not the case, as Kahneman shows us. The notion that our opinions on education and whether or not we believe education to be important enough to essentially volunteer a very small portion of our own money to pay for it. You'd think that that choice will be rooted in a network of deeply considered and felt principles. In fact, it has less to do with our principles and more to do with our proximity to the principal's office. And yes, thanks very much for that. That was mine, by the way. That wasn't Kahneman's. I came up with that all by myself. So Kahneman continues, and then we are going to move on. But I do really think that this is well worth our time to, to be diving into here. Quote, Reminders of money produce some troubling effects. Participants in one experiment were shown a list of five words from which they were required to construct a four-word phrase that had a money theme. For example, high salary, desk, and paying became high-paying salary. Other primes were much more subtle, including the presence of an irrelevant money-related object in the background, such as a stack of Monopoly money on the table or a computer with a screensaver of dollar bills floating in the water. Money-primed people, by which, and just briefly unquote, money-primed people, meaning these folks who had just received these stimuli that were fundamentally suggestive of money, but were by no means they weren't being put in some position where there was money on the line. They'd just seen a stack of Monopoly money on the next desk over. That's what money-primed people, quote-unquote, are. Going back to Kahneman's quote, money-primed people became more independent than they would be without the associative trigger. They persevered almost twice as long to solve a very difficult problem before they asked the experimenter for help a crisp demonstration of increased self-reliance. Money-primed people are also more selfish. They are much less willing to spend time helping another student who had pretended to be confused by the experimental task. Unquote. Now, for all of the things that we can take away from that, I'm going to just leave it to you to imagine, to contemplate the frequency of money primes in our day-to-day -day lives and the resulting consequence of those primes as they make us both more self-reliant and more selfish, which are two ways of saying that we are less inclined to either offer or to accept assistance. Now, if I put it that way, if we use words like selfishness, do you want to believe that you are a more or less selfish person based on a screensaver that you just saw? Or do you want to believe that that's something to do with your well-considered, thought-out beliefs? Well, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of choice in that matter. It's the screensaver every time. So, if the priming discussion above shows us 
how oddly we prioritize data when making decisions. To wit, whether I'm standing in or near a school, that should have no effect whatsoever on my support for school funding. But of course, as Kahneman shows us, it very much does. Kahneman goes on from here to talk about the quote-unquote affect heuristic, which, to put it very, very glibly, it's about the power of our attitudes over actual, rationally derived convictions. Let me once again uh, defer to Dr. Kahneman here, and I know this is a very quote-heavy episode, but I just find Kahneman to be an extremely clear writer, and rather than going to the trouble of trying to paraphrase all of this, it just seems like we can work directly from Kahneman's work, and it will very much benefit us. Quote, The psychologist Paul Slovak has proposed an affect heuristic in which people let their likes and dislikes determine their beliefs about the world. Your political preference determines the arguments that you find compelling. If you like the current health policy, you believe its benefits are substantial and its costs are more manageable than the cost of the alternatives. If you are a hawk in your attitude towards other nations, you probably think that they're relatively weak and that they're likely to submit to your country's military will. If, by contrast, you're a dove, you probably think that other countries are strong and will not be easily coerced. Your emotional attitude to such things as irradiated food, red meat, nuclear power, tattoos, motorcycles, All of these drive your beliefs about their benefits and their risks. If you dislike any of these things, you probably believe that its risks are high and its benefits are negligible. Unquote. Now, this is what I was mentioning before. Kahneman here is talking about attitudes as opposed to rational convictions. And he's further pointing out The extent to which these attitudes, which are very much part of what Kahneman posits as our system one thinking, these attitudes not only are not rigorously examined by system two at any point, they manage to subjugate the functioning of system two to further justify and entrench them. So what do I mean by that? So instead of reasoning, eroding our stubbornly held but illogical positions, rationalization is engaged to use our highest functioning of mind to justify and further propagate these quasi-rational, partially emotional, typically flawed convictions. So again, instead of system two working to analyze system one, system one, in the case of attitudes, puts system two to work on its behalf and causes us to use reason to justify our beliefs, not the other way around. Now, as I said, I find this to be, of of all the really unsettling, unnerving things in Kahneman's work, I find this to be one of the ones that is most relevant to our current uh, day-to-day situation and, as such, uh, you know, most uh, scary, most terrifying and intimidating. So, let's hear from Dr. Kahneman one more time on this. Quote, We see here a new side of the, quote, personality, unquote, of System 2. Until now, I've mostly described it as a more or less acquiescent monitor, which allows considerable leeway to System 1. I've also presented System 2 as active in deliberate memory search, complex computations, comparisons, planning, and choice. It appeared that System 2 is ultimately in charge with the ability to resist the suggestions of System 1, the ability to slow things down, and the ability to impose logical analysis. Self-criticism is one of the functions of System 2. In the context of attitudes, however, System 2 is more of an apologist for the emotions of System 1 than a critic of those emotions, an endorser rather than an enforcer. Its search for information and arguments is mostly constrained to information that is consistent with existing beliefs, not with an intention to to examine them. An active, coherence-seeking system one suggests solutions 
to an undemanding System 2. Unquote. So with apologies for a very long quote, though I, I do find that Kahneman's writing, like I said, it's, it's, it's just of a quality that it's silly for me to, to attempt to paraphrase. But, but here we see perhaps the ultimate indictment of the extent to which we can call these systems basically fundamentally rational. Now, up to this point, as Kahneman says, we see what I think we'd frankly call a, a pretty lazy system to it. It's, it's, it's a bit of a layabout. It's always looking for simple solutions that require as little effort as possible. But when it's really needed, it can be roused to rigorously rational and self-critical thought when, when really there's no other option. So usually we muddle along using system one until we run into some kind of problem and then system two simply has no choice but to engage itself and, and to kick in some of those rational and rigorous processes that we can use to solve problems. Now that description of the human mind, of our, hu of our decision-making, our rational processes, if I maintain the expectation of a rational idealist from the 19th century, uh, if, I'm, if I'm viewing the mind the way Mill views the mind, that description of my state of affairs, it's already not great. You know, we, we would want someone like Mill, if, if he put his thinking about the mind into this system one, system two, he would want to imagine system two as being a very hands-on manager of all of our faculties, only ever delegating tasks and in instances where it was absolutely certain that a heuristic, a, a, again, a habit, would be as effective as our more dynamic and well-directed ability to rationally improvise. But otherwise, the mind would hold on tightly to whatever task we're sure need that deliberative focus, never giving way to, to that kind of habitual mechanistic uh, action of the mind. So thinking this way, just this entire framework that, that Kahneman applies here, it's already dis a disappointing reality for a strict rationalist like Mill and others in that tradition. But then you add in this affect heuristic, this attitude idea. This is a far more damning indictment of our rational self-regard. Though anyone with access to cable news of any political leaning can pretty much see this playing out on a daily basis. Uh, and we're going to talk about this at, at, at greater length. But can we admit for the moment how rare it is for us? And I'm talking about you and me, not the other guy. We like to talk about the other folks. Uh, whoever the other folks are to us, we like to talk about them when we talk about these things. Well, let's look inward for a second and ask, how rare is it? for us ever to consider or to argue against the validity of our most cherished principles. Put it in Kahneman's terminology, to rigorously, critically examine the attitudes that dictate so much of how we process and employ information and argumentation. Instead, and I should say, it's worth reminding ourselves that this tendency, this attitudinal system one takeover tendency, this is most common, most common, in subject areas where we claim to have the most deeply seated convictions, and where we're most focused on the sort of collective good or harm of our community, our society, or our people, our family, or whoever else. Instead of rationally questioning our own convictions when we talk about something like politics, for example, we only think about ways to defend our side not to justify it, not to examine it and explore it. Or we seek to attack rather than to raise valid questions that might cause us to question ourselves as much as we hope the other guy will question him or herself. And Kahneman, in his work, essentially lays bare this mechanism by showing us that, yes, in fact, our most deliberative mental selves are subservient to our emotional proclivities. We use our capacity for reason to entrench ourselves in our felt positions, our attitudes that have never been submitted to rational analysis, or just to defend whatever our stance is through rationalization rather than reason, meaning that we use the mechanisms of reason without the intent to arrive at a truly rational conclusion. Put differently, when we consider or discuss 
the most important aspects of our own beliefs, particularly those germane to politics, we are least inclined to use reason as a self-critical tool and most inclined to rationalize, meaning again, to use our very real capacity for rational thought in a way that subjugates it to what we want to be true, whether or not it really is. And one more minor pause here to say that, you know, as you're processing all this, if you're tallying up all the instances, all the times that you've seen people you disagree with doing stuff exactly like this, if you're saying, oh, you know, that bill, I know he does this. This is exactly what he does. Whenever we talk about the election, this is what he does. Oh, he does it every time. I saw him. He did it. He does it every time. Well, if that's what you're doing right now, in that case, I would, I would encourage you to recognize that in this case, at least, it turns out we all have quite a bit in common after all. All of which is a terribly glib introduction to this wonderful guy. But suffice to say, it makes very clear that any notion of pure reason, pure rationality, anything we are talking about aspiring to, to near total objectivity, reason without being mired in any stance of our personality. Well, golly, doesn't all that seem a, a little silly after we've heard all this from, from Dr. Kahneman? If we're clinging to that notion of reason as a gateway to, to pure truth, pure objectivity, well, we are sure to be very disappointed. We are forever mired in ourselves, and there is simply no way of, of just thinking our way out of that. You know, as an aside, I was driving into town to get my coffee this afternoon, um, and I, I, there's a Cure song, the, the band The, the Cure, uh, a song called Play for Today, which, first of all, I got to say, absolutely, it's just a banger. It's a, it's a barn burn. It's, it's just a fantastic song, and it's a fantastic song, particularly, uh, listen to the the Paris live album. Oh my God. Uh, you can, you can go back. I went on YouTube too. I, after I, I got home, I went on YouTube and I, I listened to the original. And first of all, it's very funny. You see, uh, the cure Robert Smith, he, he looks like he's going to, uh, to audition for a, a part as an extra on Miami vice. It's just absolutely the cutest thing you'd ever seen. He's like, he looks like he's about 12 years old, but obviously brilliant guy. In any event, this song the opening stanza of this song is nearly perfect for our purposes, so I thought I'd just quote it for you quickly. It's not a case of doing what's right. It's just the way I feel that matters. Tell me I'm wrong. I don't really care. Now, um, unquote for, for the moment, but uh, if you were kind of wondering, when, when was I going to find a way to uh, talk about imperialism again on this episode, because we've gone this entire time, I haven't talked about imperialism for once, well, Perfect. I'll just keep going with the quote because the next, the next couplet that Robert Smith says is, it's not a case of share and share alike. I take what I require. And I don't understand when you say it's not fair. Unquote. And, and by the way, uh, and I, I know you tune into this show to, you know, for me to tell you what great music is, but you don't just tune in to hear me tell you what great music is. You tune in to, for me to tell you why it's great music. Why is Play for Today such a banger? And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you exactly why. It's because Robert Smith, in this song, he understands the role of the rhythm guitar. I always talk about the lead guitar. I always talk about the lead guitar. You got, you got your slash, you got everybody else with the, 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 the violin kind of notes. Eh, okay, great. I mean, great stuff. Don't get me wrong. But Robert Smith, and P.J. Harvey, for that matter, boy, oh boy, they know about what you can do with a rhythm guitar. Oof, just absolute bangers. But I, I, I very much digress. It's important to point out the philosophy itself, our standard core, quote-unquote, Western European philosophy, has for nearly two centuries been slowly moving to a pretty similar conclusion to what Kahneman's been reiterating through the course of this, as, as I think I did mention before. Now, after centuries of having built their entire endeavor around a faith in absolute reason, that faith started to decay for a number of philosophers as they sort of began to push back 
against the primacy of quote-unquote pure reason as the most important faculty of the human mind, or in many cases, to push back against the notion that it really even was a faculty of the human mind. And there were many, many strands of this, I, you know, I said before. We're talking about Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche. We're talking about Wittgenstein. We're talking about the postmodernists. We're talking about the existentialists. I mean, you, you go go talk about Foucault and Derrida and start talking about absolute objective reasoning, you're going to get laughed out of the room. So obviously this idea of this perfect, objective, pure rationality, that has long since gone by the wayside. However, what we need to remember when we, when we recognize that fact is that it still is very much baked into these foundations that I keep talking about. The locks, the mills, Rousseau in his way, Hobbes in his way, all of these folks, all these classical guys, they all deferred to this fundamental notion. It's all baked into the, into really the conception most fundamentally of what a human being even is in the first place. And thus, of course, it permeates through everything they talk about when it comes to the mind and civil society and law and freedom and on and on and on and on. So all this means that, you know, at least on a theoretical level, we now understand that we don't have this kind of perfect, abstract, logical capacity, blah, blah, blah. However, again, we need to remember that this idea is rooted into what has been the, the you know, our, meaning our European, but uh, we're going to talk more and more about how pervasive that mindset has now become, but that it has been baked into our most basic worldview, the most basic foundations of our worldview, as I say. As such, so when I say, when we, when we sort of say very glibly that we, you know, we all agree that we're not capable of this kind of pure reason, pure objectivity, still many, many of our assumptions about the mind, about the way it should and does perform, have maintained this idea as, as kind of just an, an idea that's lurking in the background, an unspoken, a tacit presumption that shapes so much that we build on top of it. So even as we say we don't believe any of it, still, again, tacitly under the surface, at the foundation of so many of our theories and presumptions and assumptions about the mind, at the very most foundational point, many of these ideas still lurk and still shape the other ideas that build up around them, particularly ideas about who and what we as human beings are and how our minds can and should work. Now, of course, that's a murky presumption for me to be making. Uh, you know, I'm assuming that you experience the same uh, sort of instinctive predilections that I do, or at least ones that are similar in kind. But I think it's safe to say that if you were at all bothered by what you heard from Daniel Kahneman above, then fundamentally my presumptions are, are basically correct. So we're going to use the next episode or two to delve into the impact that this belief in pure reason, along with all these other aspects of worldview that we've been discussing, how has that impulse, how has that belief affected us and affected the rest of the world in the way we've impacted history and other people? We're going to begin with a somewhat longer look at imperialism, though still Certainly not with anything like the depth that this subject deserves, given how influential, how destructive, how defining it has been. But we'll see the relationship between that genocidal movement and this notion of pure reason. We'll see, as we certainly saw foreshadowed in Mill, the link between this comparatively esoteric European thought pattern, and we're going to see the connection between that and a series of events which, over the centuries, has transformed our planet and affected the lives of every person that lives on it. Surely not necessarily for the better. But before we close it out for today, just one final thought. Though we may now all be reconciled, at least on a conscious, explicit level, we may be reconciled to the notion that pure reason of the sort that Kant and Mill and Locke and Descartes and all the rest of these folks, we, we, we might be pretty comfortable with saying that Pure reason as they may have envisioned it and theorized about it, certainly that can't exist, that almost godlike quality of mind. 
it is not within our capacity, and it is perhaps, as we'll see, distorting and, and maybe even dangerous to presume that it is. But before we close out this obscene roast that I've just committed on, on my uh, sort of beloved, maybe fairy tale, traditional European notions of reason, that, you know, because I read these books and I spend so much time about it, of course, I absolutely love, even though we don't find it terribly realistic, I'd like to say a few quick words in defense of that idea after all of this, that, uh, the contrary view that we've been talking about. I do believe that we can admit that human reasoning is not the gateway to pure objectivity, and we can further admit that there should not be one single privileged way of approaching the way we reason, the way we understand, the way we inquire in the world. That one single true path to objective certainty, yes, we can set all of that aside. We can further admit, as I believe we will simply have to, that the belief in the superiority of this way of thinking has done real and lasting damage to the world and quite likely to the vast majority of its people. I believe we can and must admit all of that. And yet, we can still say that there is an important validity in attempting to use the capacity of our minds, what uh, Daniel Kahneman would call our system two thinking, if, if you prefer to put it that way. It is essential to attempt to use the capacity of our minds to commit reason in this way as best we can. Attempting to cultivate objectivity in our thinking knowing that we will not achieve it, attempting to rationally consider the implications of, a, of an idea, knowing that we cannot do so at all comprehensively, attempting to imagine alternate perspectives from our own, knowing that we cannot possibly do that comprehensively, attempting to solve problems coldly and clinically while also recognizing the limits of such an approach and incorporating those limits into our thinking. Perhaps in the end, I only remain, uh, how shall I say, somewhat partial to these uh, sort of classical rationalist ideas. Maybe that's a form, ironically enough, maybe that's a form of romanticism in me. But I still do think there's something very compelling about this way of thinking, so long as we recognize the limitations of it and the extent to which it most certainly is not godlike and the way it is most certainly not privileged as uniquely powerful amongst all the various ways that you can potentially use the mind. But surely I digress. We're going to come back to that, but we can leave it be for now. Next time, we're going to continue the roast. We're going to talk about how this belief in and commitment to a single type of reasoning has quite possibly changed the entire world's mind. I'll talk to you then. I'm looking forward to it. So, some questions based on today's episode. First, while I think that we can say with a lot of confidence that Kahneman brings completely into question the possibility of a kind of reasoning and rational capacity that folks like Mill and Locke and others in this classical European tradition believed in. I think we can, we can very justifiably say that Kahneman very effectively says we have to question that. We cannot simply believe in the efficacy of that style of reasoning. And as I've said, many, many other thinkers, almost every other thinker at this point in time has kind of come together and said, for whatever reason, we cannot believe in reasoning as a concept, as a force in the way that folks like Mill and Locke did. There are too many asterisks. There are too many things that make it not work the way these folks thought it was going to. But looking at Kahneman's work, I think we can still justifiably ask to what extent we can actually succeed in training our minds to implement that, you know, quote unquote, to use the term Kahneman uses, that system two style of thinking, that more deliberate, that more, you know, more thoughtful, more reasoned, uh, slower, as he says, way of thinking. Now, even if we're in, in doing that, we're not being perfectly absolute or objective, at least we can still conduct something akin 
to a traditional rational process. And I don't think Kahneman ever explicitly says that's not the case, that we simply can't do that. He just says we're not terribly well inclined to do it. Now, again, we, we can certainly see this is not our instinctive default way of using the mind. But Kahneman does seem open to the idea that we can get our minds to perform in this way, this, this system to slower, more deliberative use of logic and reason. Uh, we, can, we can use that faculty to better inform our decisions if we force ourselves to in every case. If we can essentially keep our minds from falling into the lazy habits and heuristics that cause it to tend to jump to assumptions, jump to conclusions without going through that slower and more difficult process of reasoning. Well, if that's the case, then to me, the, the question becomes, are we essentially forcing our minds to behave in a way that is productive? So when I, when I say we're going to be more mindful and, and use that system to that slower thinking more deliberately, we're going to force ourselves to do that more often. So is that exactly as I've characterized it, is that us forcing our minds to behave in a way that is genuinely more productive, that is serving a purpose, that is making us more, quote unquote, traditionally rational, even if it's effort intensive, you know, it's not to our, it's not our inclination, but does it still serve a purpose? Or is the entire project of the traditional reasoning, is all of that somehow misguided? Is there a better way for our minds to work that we're trying to force this way of reasoning that actually isn't an optimal way to be uh, handling and challenge and handling some of these challenges, meeting some of these, these intellectual problems we have. Is there some more reliable way of using our minds to make decisions that would also not constantly be asking the mind to do things that it frankly seems far too lazy to be, to want to be doing. So that's question one. Is there still, if can we read Kahneman and still hold out some hope for something like a conviction that this tr this traditional form of rationality still has some validity to it? Is is that something we can still say, or do we have to wash our hands of this idea completely and start from scratch? Another question that was in the back of my mind in my reading of Kahneman. Kahneman never talks about what is inherent in the mind versus what is learned. So the, you know, the whole discussion of nature versus nurture, what things do we, are we taught to do that even if we come to believe they are, they're absolutely necessary, they're the only way of doing things. Nonetheless, we were fundamentally taught them. How much of the, the mind is, is created from things that we are taught through experience and how much of the mind is there in structure before we've begun to learn anything and simply cannot be changed at all. So to ask this question in terms of Kahneman, if we go back to a variant of one of the questions that we asked at the end of the last episode, I can't help but wonder how much of Kahneman's findings could be different if he were experimenting with people whose minds operated very differently from ours. Now, perhaps a lot of it would be exactly the same. If that is entirely possible, and I'm not, not sort of uh, demanding a particular conclusion here, but for all that that's possible, the, the question does certainly remain. And depending on how you answer it, so say if we, you know, we, we encounter a people who's had no dealings whatsoever with the quote-unquote Western world, with our kind of European rationalist tradition, that their pattern of thinking is still very traditional, indigenous to their, their, their own development. Well, if we sat one of those folks down with Kahneman, which would be a very strange move and that that would require a lot of probably translation activities that we're probably not up to. But if we were to sit that person down with Kahneman and have Kahneman try to conduct similar experiments, would a lot of the conclusions ultimately be the same or would the different structure of that individual's mind dictate entirely different outcomes in terms of what Kahneman would be coming up here, coming up with it in all this. And now, as we think about this question, depending on how you answer it, one conclusion that you could come to, or at least one theory that you could, you could likely posit, is that if our civil society actually did a better job 
of cultivating rigorous rationality for all that we sort of use it as our our banner and we're, we're so chauvinistic on those we have this particular style of reasoning that's so developed so so important if our civil society if our the structures of civil society if the way we went about constructing minds actually did a better job of cultivating rigorous rationality maybe that system too would inherently be a little bit more of a go-getter maybe we're actually letting this capacity atrophy in ourselves in a way that we shouldn't be doing and again i have no particular dog in this fight it's just the question of how much of this is inherent versus how much of this is learned or constructed through experience that seems to me key in a way that i don't feel like kahneman ever really addresses and he'd probably tell you that's not my problem and not my problem how these minds came to be what they are only my problem to explain to you the dynamic of how they operate so that's a bit of an aside but of course there are many directions we could go with all this and they're they're more or less all all idle but uh you know of course so much of this show is about idle curiosity so i'd be curious to hear your answers to these questions and any further thoughts you might have in this episode as always you can reach me on twitter at a freedom of ideas via email words at a freedom of ideas or just go check out the website you can find all kinds of stuff that is a freedom of ideas.com as always thanks so much for tuning in <laughs>